Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Luke A. Nichter. Professor Nichter is Professor of History at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. He has in the past co-edited with Douglas Brinkley the Nixon Tapes, 1971-1972, and today we are speaking about his newest book, The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., and the Making of the Cold War. Welcome, Professor Nichter. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Professor, what is, if uh, one may put it, uh, the um, thesis of your book? Well, the thesis of the book is, is essentially, you know, I, I go back to what I say to my students in the classroom. You know, the Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., is the, mo- the most famous person that you've never heard of. Uh, and rather than remember his role, uh, his central role in foreign policy for a third of a century in the middle of the 20th century, we have largely forgotten him. And so this book, uh, much more so than I think um, whether a reader comes away thinking more or less about Lodge, the main point is simply to restore him to the place in history that he really always had. And uh, if you might, if you might allow me to ask, why did you write this book? Oh, sure. Uh, and I, I have uh, <laughs> no erudite answer I can, I can make up to that question. This book was never planned. I mean, in a sense, you know, everything I've done has led to the next thing. Um, but, you know, Lodge was just a name that kept coming up, um, having worked on the, the, the White House tapes of Kennedy, Johnson, especially Nixon. He was a name that came up in uh, all three of those, making him sort of a unique figure. And, you know, I, I, as, as a writer, other writers know you spend time working on things that never quite gain traction, and then every once in a while something uh, develops a momentum of its own. And this was really the latter. You know, he had been overlooked, and uh, quite simply, I was asked um, uh, by Yale University Press if I'd be interested in proposing a biography. And it was, you know, I've done a lot on the sort of 1950s to 1970s. It's kind of my time period. Lodge fits mostly within that pretty well. And so I say, that sounds like a great project. And I proposed it, uh, went under contract in 2015, and here we are. Can you explain a little bit about Henry Cabot Lodge's family background and how the Lodges, I should say the Cabots and the Lodges, fitted into the social pecking order of mid to late 19th century New England? Oh, sure, yeah. I, I, uh, so I argue in the book that Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. is really the last true Boston Brahmin. Uh, to be active in politics. And, you know, I think uh, uh, some of America's oldest cities, uh, colonial cities, going back that far, uh, each had a kind of um, upper class, uh, almost at times a caste, whether we're talking about uh, New York, Boston area, Philadelphia, and, and, uh, and other founding cities. Uh, but those are the three big ones. And in Boston, um, you know, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, the Cabots and the Lodges, and the Lowell's, and the Peabody's, and so many others 
that uh, some of them can be traced all the way back to the, to the Mayflower and to uh, the earliest colonial settlements. Um, the, the lodges and the Cabots certainly join together. The Cabot side of the family goes back, um, goes back that far. And the, taken as a whole, uh, this is a family that had an almost unbroken line of uh, political service, uh, public service that went back all the way uh, to the founding of the Republic, to the Washington-Adams administration. And when you add it up, it's something like six senators, uh, governors, I mean, plenty of congressmen, um, cabinet members, the first secretary of the Navy, I mean, the founders of several founding documents, state and national. Uh, This was just, I mean, almost kind of a unique family in terms of its service to the country. And Lodge was really the end of the line. And and, uh, no cabinet Lodge family member has uh, has sort of other distant branches of the family have stayed in in politics, such as the Freeling Heisens in New Jersey, but in terms of the Cabots and Lodges, uh, this almost unbroken line of service came to an end with Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and no Cabot Lodge has served in, pu- in, in public office since the 1950s. And uh, what was uh, Henry Cabot Lodge's relationship with his grandfather, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Sr. And uh, how, if at all, did his grandfather's political views influence him? Oh, it's a great question. You know, I remember, um, you know, I, I don't remember when I first heard the name Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., but it must have been high school or college. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I think for a lot of people, including myself then, um, you immediately recognize it as an important name. This is someone important, a serious figure, someone famous, but you can't quite place it. And I remember thinking myself, um, you know, could, could, is this the same person who was Woodrow Wilson's nemesis, who blocked American entry to the League of Nations? And if so, you know, how old could he have been, you know, when he uh, ran on the ticket with Richard Nixon in 1960 against Kennedy and Johnson? And I think, um, you know, part of the confusion for people is that he was named not for his father, um, but uh, who died when he was young, but he was named for his, his grandfather, Henry, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who was Woodrow Wilson's nemesis. And, um, you know, so I think... He, uh, with his father dying young, he learned a lot of his political views from his grandfather in terms of his views re- regarding uh, internationalism, uh, world, world conflict, the League of Nations, uh, immigration. And, uh, you know, I think his grandfather had a kind of um, isolationist, uh, neo-isolationist view. And I think uh, the, the, the grandson, the one I wrote about, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., inherited a lot of those views. Uh, but then ultimately, because of World War II, and in particular, it was um, in, in particular the bombing of London, in particular the occupation of France by the Germans, and then finally uh, also uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Lodge and others of his generation who started out with this kind of neo-isolationist views uh, that the world's a big enough place, you know, without us, we don't need to be America. America doesn't need to be the world's policemen had this dramatic transformation, transformation ultimately, from isolationism to internationalism uh, as a result of uh, Pearl Harbor, and uh, ultimately went on, to, uh, he, let, he quit his Senate seat in 1944, the first to do that since the American Civil War, to go into full-time combat uh, in World War II. So he has this, uh, inherits these views from his grandfather, has this dramatic, uh, has this dramatic conversion during World War II, and ultimately becomes a leader of the, the internationalists and reorients the Republican Party by choosing Dwight Eisenhower in 1952 in that direction. And I think it's fair to say it's largely stayed that way ever since. In uh, his biography of Robert F. Kennedy, 
Arthur Schlesinger Jr. has a rather snide um, extended uh, footnote in which he says that uh, Cabot Lodge's uh, true or legal name would have been Henry Cabot Lodge II since his father was not named Henry and that it was only for political reasons that they attached the junior after the name. Is that correct or not? Well, I mean, um, it, I, don't, I don't know that it's correct or not correct. Um, it doesn't come up in the Lodge records. You know, I was the, the first historian to really go through Lodge's extensive papers um, up at the Massachusetts Historical Society. When it, most of his life, uh, you know, he was known as Cabot to people who knew him. He was just simply known as Cabot, and that was to differentiate himself from uh, his grandfather, who, when he was still alive until 1924. Um, and he remained known as Cabot the rest of his life. The, you know, he, he, was, um, he was criticized often. Uh, he was criticized in his first Senate race in 1936 for not using the junior. Um, and he was criticized then by Governor James Curley um, for, by not using the junior. He was an imposter. Um, because he wanted people to think that he was his grandfather. Um, so, you know, I mean, you're, you're criticized for using the junior, for not using the junior. I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what it really matters. Um, there are times in his life he went by two instead of junior, um, but I think ultimately um, he was known by junior kind of stuck, because, again, the whole point is to differentiate himself from his grandfather. Uh, but as I say, to, to intimates, um, he was always known as Cabot for the rest of his life. Uh, I, it, I noticed in the book that uh, his secondary school was uh, Middlesex. Why didn't he go to one of the more famous uh, secondary schools that are dotting the landscape of New England, like Broughton, Andover, St. Paul's, or Choate's? Well, um, his papers are silent on that question. Um, the, uh, the thing, what I found in the papers was um, his, uh, uh, at, the, at the time, he, uh, they, they lived in France. Uh, they lived in France during the Guns of August in, uh, in 1914. And his, his, his uh, newly widowed uh, mother was quite happy to stay in France uh, because uh, it, it, uh, it, it, stayed, it allowed her some distance from uh, memories of her, her, her spouse who died at, uh, in his 30s, uh, Lodge's father. Um, and it also kept some distance from Lodge's grandfather, who liked to kind of have his tentacles and be involved in family affairs. And so, you know, I mean, living in, living in France um, was a return to happier times, uh, a return to when Lodge's father was alive, and he was a poet and a writer. They spent time in France. They traveled. It had become kind of a second home. Um, so I think they were quite happy to stay there. And then ultimately it was the intervention of Lodge's grandfather uh, with, I believe, as the Middlesex headmaster, um, who said, uh, no, he, uh, you know, my, both of my grandsons, the, it was uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and his brother John Davis Lodge, the future governor of Connecticut, uh, will be starting there next fall. And according to the papers, there, you know, there's no discussion of alternate uh, placement, uh, other, other possibilities considered. The only thing that's revealed in Lodge's personal papers, in terms of correspondence from his grandfather, is that he didn't want him to spend too much time in Washington, and he didn't want him to spend too much time in France because he wanted to make sure he, he re retained American roots, and specifically Massachusetts roots. And so I think that weighed heavily on the decision. But in terms of the alternates, you know, the, the papers are silent. Why did he decide to get in, into politics, unlike, say, his father? 
Well, his father was was kind of an interesting character. Um, you know, he he his life was cut short so young. Um, I think he felt. Uh, you know, I think you look at a lot of political families, and you you look at kind of what the kids do, so called in you know, the so called kids, and sometimes they follow directly. You know, in in the patriarch's footsteps, and other times they rebel. They want nothing to do with it. And I think uh, uh, George Lodge, or no, he was known as Bay Bay Lodge, uh, Lodge's father. Uh, was the latter. He rebelled. He tried working in on Capitol Hill. He tried working in his uh, in Henry Cabot Lodge's seniors uh, Senate office, and I think he liked it, but felt constrained by that. He was more of an artistic type. He was a poet. He was a writer, kind of a kind of a um, I would say kind of a second-rate poet who never really got credit for his work in his lifetime. Uh, but he, you know, he, he I, emphasis on second-rate. But he was a solid second-rate poet. I mean, his work. He was fairly prolific, and his work was was fairly good. I quote some of it in uh, in his in the course his correspondence back and forth in the book. Um, so I think you know uh, the, the, he he rebelled, whereas Lodge, um, according to his own papers, says you know from my earliest memories, I remember discussions of caucuses and parties and in convention platforms, and he said it just stuck, and he went to, to Harvard and from a debating society. He became interested in, in politics and oratory and debating from a young age. Uh, his grandfather, who studied law as an undergraduate, uh, instructed Lodge that, in fact, he thought journalism was better training uh, for public service. So, in fact, he was born and bred for public service um, uh, from a young age. It was just a question of kind of how that played out. And so he, uh, his undergraduate degree was journalism. Uh, and he uh, he did uh, he did uh, cover Massachusetts politics and Washington politics for several years uh, for the Boston Transcript and also for the New York Herald Tribune, and then finally uh, made his plunge. He had been encouraged uh, at a very as soon as he was of, of legal age to run for office, and in fact he declined more than one opportunity because he he didn't think he was mature enough. He didn't think he knew enough, had strong enough convictions to be a public leader yet. Uh, but finally he made the plunge. Uh, in, the, in the lower house of Massachusetts, uh, just incidentally, as, as his grandfather started out. And why did he decide to run for the Senate in 1936? I think that was the one time when he really had political ambitions. Uh, later in life, I think he shrugged those off. He, you know, nowadays I think we're to a degree we're all political cynics, and you assume every politician is looking for the next highest job. And when someone says, no, I'm not interested in the presidency, we view that with a degree of skepticism. But I think from the 30s to the 40s, I think Lodge was uh, politically ambitious and was looking to move up. And I cite correspondence with his mother uh, in, the, in the 30s that says uh, he's looking for the next step up. He says, he can, you know, I think he says something like a great step up, meaning from you know, Massachusetts House all the way up to the U.S. Senate. It's quite a leap. And he thinks he can get there. And I think I think that's a the reason why someone like him why he could make such a leap is not just because of his background and of course he had a famous name, it's also because a lot of his grandfather's social network was still alive in Washington, and so what I describe in the book is that when he runs for Senate and and, and is elected in 36, takes up his seat in 37, his grandfather had only been dead for 13 years, and so he still had there were an enormous number of Cabot Lodge friends still in Washington. And ultimately, the grandson, Henry Cabot Lodge, is able to pick up uh, a lot of those loose ends from his grandfather's old political and social network. And I think that's really what propels his career right from the start. Why did he decide to quit the Senate and join the Army 
And was he, in fact, uh, the only senator to do so after, since World War II? And um, as you mentioned, uh, from the Civil War up to 1942. Well, it was an it was an ominous thing because the the precedent at the time was um, uh, the Battle of Ball's Bluff in the Civil in the Civil War, and in, in that case, the, the senator in question was killed in, in action. So it was not it was I mean he would have done this knowing that the precedent did not look very good. But I think what happened was um, he initially volunteered for service in 1942. You know, many um, uh, members of Congress and senators volunteered for service, whether it be uh, something in Washington or overseas after Pearl Harbor. I mean, it was a rallying point, obviously. Uh, but the trouble after a while, as I document in the book, is you need people to, to run the government. And uh, so, so Lodge and others volunteered for service in 42 and 43, and then finally. Um, uh, President uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt had to issue an order that says, you know, look, you have to choose. Either you, you fill the, the, the position you know, to which you were elected or uh, you go to war. And uh, that uh, pretty much uh, divided the issue right there, and, and, mo- and everyone returned to office. And so Lodge, uh, Lodge did so too. Lodge, Lodge, even in 42, thought about quitting the Senate seat. But his friends um, in Washington, including George Marshall and others, uh, thought he could be of greater use by staying right there in the Senate because he had the military experience. He'd been in the Army Reserve since the 1920s, and he was one of the few uh, people on the Hill who really knew how the military worked at a time when that was very important to know. And so he was convinced by others to stay right where he was at, that he could be of more service there than one more person deployed for combat during the war. Uh, but ultimately, uh, what his private writings show um, he didn't keep a formal diary, but he wrote a lot of memos to himself and little notes to himself, and he kind of stuffed them in his personal papers. And so every once in a while you find one of his papers that tells you what he really thought about something. And what you see is I think it weighed very heavily on his conscience that he felt like, I, you know, if, if I don't go into service full time, I'm going to regret it. And so there's quite a process leading up to his decision in early 1944 I mean, in advance, he got his inoculations, he got his physical at Walter Reed Medical Hospital, he had, had determined where his assignment, his deployment would be, I mean, all that had been determined in advance before he went to the White House to notify FDR of his decision. So I think it weighed very, very heavily on his conscience, and I think, you know, I think he thought it was a, it was a duty. I think it was, it was a unique role that he could play during a time of crisis. And he felt that it was a duty, and I don't think he used that word lightly. It was a duty for him to undertake that mission. How did his military experience in World War II affect his future views on foreign policy? Oh gosh, this this yeah, this is a this is a complicated subject. You know, I I, I think um, you know, in the first sense, it was he was Lodge was convinced. Um, you know, remember he went to the Senate in 1937 as a Republican, a kind of middle-of-the-road Republican from Massachusetts, there were only 17 Republicans in the Senate. 17! And four or five of those, if you really drill down, are kind of old, you know, La Follette progressives. I mean, not even real Republicans. And so, I mean, I mean this, they were pretty much wiped out. As a, FDR had wiped them out as a national party. They were basically a, a regional isolationist party. And so I think Lodge's conversion himself to internationalism during World War II, uh, he came home from, from war service and believed that should be the future of the Republican Party because the country needs to be, have kind of a permanent readiness for war. 
Um, and so he, his idea, he thought Eisenhower was a, was a perfect fit for that, someone with the great military experience uh, who, could, who could keep the nation out of war, uh, but who understood what war was and understood the military. And that was a dramatic change from the Robert Taft, you know, isolationist, you know, sort of in the right wing of the Republican Party. So I think there's really two, two uh, answers to the question. Number one, it was really to reorient the direction of the country, and in particular the Republican Party, into an internationalist party in Lodge's image. And then I think secondly, later, during the Vietnam era, you see that Lodge and others who had become internationalists, uh, that uh, their, their internationalist zeal is in part what uh, caused the United States to become overstretched during Vietnam. So I think perhaps they call it a good, a bad, a pro, and a con, I think there's a, a, a multiple, uh, multiple ways in which Lodge's transformation played out in successive decades, but those are perhaps the two most significant. Actually, you sort of anticipated my next question, which was, uh, respectively, what was uh, Cabot Lodge's uh, relationship with Arthur Vandenberg and Robert Taft? Well, uh, Vandenberg, you know, he, Vandenberg from Michigan, you know, he considered to be kind of a mentor. Um, he was, uh, uh, number one, a journalist by training. Uh, he was kind of a father figure. Remember, Lodge's father died young. He didn't really have a father around after the age of, uh, age, after the age of seven or so. Um, and he was so journalist by training, a mentor, and also from the international swing of the party. And so in 1948, um, uh, Lodge was a, uh, a backer of Vandenberg uh, at the convention. I think what Lodge hoped to do was to uh, kind of throw a, a monkey wrench into the nomination process in uh, 1948 and uh, on the second or third ballot throw the vote to Vandenberg. Instead, Dewey, uh, Thomas Dewey, was uh, nominated, someone who later became close to Lodge and someone uh, Lodge supported and rode on the train with uh, during the, the main part of the campaign. But I think that, uh, Vandenberg and, and Lodge were, were friends. They were political allies. They worked very closely on Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the immediate post-war years in the creation of much of the post-war era. I mean, everything from the Pentagon to NATO to the Marshall Plan. I mean, much of kind of the, the internationalist infrastructure that was created was created in that relationship between Vandenberg and Lodge and Senate Foreign Relations, whereas Taft was really the dominant figure on the other side of the party. Uh, Taft also had a famous name in politics. He uh, uh, was a rising star in the Republican Party. He was, it seems like on every major issue uh, that happened that confronted the Republican Party, it was you know, Lodge and the internationalists on one side, and it was Taft and the conservatives or the isolationists on the other. And that was kind of consistent uh, through 1952, you know, and Eisenhower's uh, nomination and ultimate election. And so these were where the, the battle lines were drawn. And again, you have anticipated me, anticipated me a little bit. Why did uh, Cabot Lodge think that uh, Eisenhower should run for president in 1952? Well, uh, much has been written about uh, the, the, the Eisenhower forces that uh, drafted him. And, and I think no one person you know, did the job. It was a cross-section of people who believed um, uh, that politics needed a new face, and in particular politics in the Republican Party. Because uh, if, if you're a Republican in 1952, you've been shut out of the White House um, for 20 years. There's not even you know, anybody except for those very long in the tooth who had any experience at all in, in, in the White House. You've been largely shut out of the majority in Congress. 
There was the, the brief flip, you know, during the Truman years for a couple of years. And so, as I say, the Republican Party had, had basically been decimated, down to 17 senators and, on top of that, locked out of the White House for 20 years. And so I think Lodge and others believed that it would take a, uh, uh, a charismatic figure, someone not a traditional face, someone new, who could really change the direction of the party and change the direction of the country. And so Eisenhower was that figure, enormously personally popular. Um, you know, it, there was a lot of wrangling back and forth because, of course, Eisenhower was running NATO in France and he was legally uh, hindered from running for public office. And so Lodge really had to not just be his campaign manager, but it, it's kind of a fascinating story that I haven't seen told anywhere else. Lodge really had to be Eisenhower because starting in November of 51, when Lodge is his campaign manager, He's asked every day by the press, what does Eisenhower think about this and what does he think about that? And the truth is, Eisenhower is running NATO. Eisenhower is not really thinking about these things. And so Lodge had to create answers and give press conferences of what Eisenhower thought that really were Lodge's views. And it were these views that became the policies, more or less, of the Eisenhower administration. So he was far more than a campaign manager. He really was Eisenhower. And at times, he really stretched the limit of his relationship with Eisenhower you know, born in the fire of uh, uh, World War II, you know, I think Lodge was probably the only politician who could talk very plainly with Eisenhower because he was the only politician who had the military experience that he did alongside Eisenhower. And so one, one dramatic moment comes to mind when um, early January, here comes the filing date for the New Hampshire primary, which was then the first one, not the, not the Iowa caucuses that we have today. And uh, Lodge calls a press conference, and uh, announces two things. Announces that Eisenhower is going to run for president, and he's going to do so on the Republican ticket. And Lodge does that without consulting Eisenhower in France. And Eisenhower's diary shows how angry he was at that. And, but the New Hampshire law at the time was, if, if you're nominated to be on the ballot, you're on the ballot, unless you refute it as a candidate. And so Eisenhower had a window of time to, 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 <laughs> to refute it, and ultimately, he went along with it. So, no, it's a, it's a fascinating story of, of how they got Eisenhower, who, who, who was unwilling most of the time to run for president, uh, how he ultimately did, how he fought against Taft to get the nomination, and ultimately how he, he won, and how it, that completely changed the direction of the party and the nation. Would it be correct to say that but for uh, Cabot Lodge's intervention, Eisenhower would never become president? Ah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, I, well, look, I'll split the difference. What I say in the book is, is others up till now have been given credit for, running, for getting Eisenhower to run. Tom Dewey, of course, had been the nominee in 48. Uh, Herb Brownell uh, was also very important, who became Eisenhower's attorney general. What I document in the book is two things. Uh, number one, that I believe it was Lodge who first recognized Eisenhower as a political figure, writing him in 1943, years before anybody else. Uh, Lodge commented to Eisenhower, hey, look, you're popular. You know, I just came off of a tough Senate race in 42, and your name is worth something. The Eisenhower brand is powerful. People gravitate to you. They're really interested. They think you're honest. They think you're charismatic. And so I think Lodge recognized the talent as a talent scout, effectively, for Eisenhower earlier than most. So it was really, I think, Lodge's his scouting work uh, plus his, his own, you know, the role he played as campaign manager, 
um, I would say, plus Dewey's political and fundraising network, and plus Brownell's, you know, behind-the-scenes work with the party, uh, I think that really became the trifecta that, that pushed Eisenhower over the line. Uh, but where I give credit for is, is for Lodge really being the talent scout in the first place. Why did Cabot Lodge believe that Richard Nixon would be a good vice president uh, uh, running alongside Eisenhower? Oh, I think Lodge saw uh, Nixon uh, for what he was. You know, Lodge, uh, Nixon was always a compromise. He, he, was, uh, he was not part of the, the Taft side of the party. He was not part of the Dewey side of the party, the Lodge Vandenberg side of the party. Uh, he, was, he, he often sat in the middle. He had strong anti-communist credentials, which, appear, which appealed to the Taft and then later on to the McCarthy side of the party. Uh, but yet he supported NATO and he supported the Marshall Plan. He had this sort of internationalist flair. He had been on the Herder Commission. And so he kind of was able to straddle both sides of the party, and that was not an easy thing to do then when so many decisive votes uh, in the Senate caused you to choose sides. And Nixon kind of, you know, carefully avoided choosing sides during the, uh, the late 40s in the House and then after 1950 when Nixon was first elected to the Senate. So he was a compromise. He was someone who was not necessarily loved by either, but sometimes in politics it's more important not to be hated by either. And so he was a good complement, a good energetic side to go with the more grandfatherly image of Eisenhower and so I think it was Lodge who played a role very early in uh, in getting Nixon on that ticket. Uh, what would you say was the key variable uh, which helps to explain why Cabot Lodge was defeated by John F. Kennedy in 1952? Well, I, th I think, well, it's hard to know. I mean, clearly the uh, Eisenhower's race and the fact that Lodge was away from Massachusetts for most of the year managing that, um, and I think Lodge was willing to do that. Lodge knew that by neglecting his Senate race, he was taking a chance that he would not be reelected. And his own private writings show that by 52, he was kind of getting tired of the Senate. I mean, he was first elected in 36. He was reelected in 42. Then he went off to war and came back and was reelected in 46. He kind of felt like, well, I, you know, kind of been there, done that. And he, there wasn't much more for him to do in the Senate. So he kind of had this attitude where he wasn't really enthusiastic about it to begin with. Uh, and then, of course, being taken away, running Eisenhower's campaign severely hindered him from being able to campaign. Uh, but meanwhile, um, Congressman John F. Kennedy uh, was able to cam campaign, you know, the whole year while Lodge was largely gone. But so, so that that we know. But the second factor that really made a difference is uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, I mean, here you have someone and from a family that, in many ways, um, you know, was was a, a refreshed version of the Cabot Lodge family. I, I, you know, while one was the wasp and one was uh, Catholic, uh, one was old money, one was new. You know, I think they had more similarities than differences. Joe Kennedy had supported some of Lodge's earlier races, such as his 42 Senate race. And I think what the Kennedys did ultimately was uh, take a lot of the, the groundbreaking techniques that Lodge used in his earlier races and improve upon them. And plus, they, I think they, had, they were better funded, too. And so I think, you know, Lodge always wrote privately that, uh, you know, look at the demographics of Massachusetts. There's a time coming while Lodge and his grandfather had always had support of the Irish, had always had support of the working class and of the Catholics. He said there was a time coming uh, that, um, you know, once the Irish uh, get some good candidates, it's going to be awfully tough to beat them. And so I think that's what you see in 1952, is that uh, the Kennedys came along and were better organized, they were better funded, 
and used the Lodge model and, and did it even one better. So I think Lodge was clearly hindered by being uh, distracted by Eisenhower and out of the state, but at the same time, uh, the Kennedys were going to be awfully tough to beat. Uh, in the same biography of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, Schlesinger implies that uh, the Kennedys' support for Lodge in the 42 race was purely opportunistic, that they wanted to prevent a strong Catholic uh, candidate from having the seat for an extended period of time. Would you uh, agree with that or not? I, I would mostly agree with that. Um, you know, one of the things that Lodge inadvertently did, I mean, he had three tough races. Um, he had 36, 42, and 46. And in each cases, you know, defeated a legendary Democrat. Um, and by doing so, had really cleared a path for a new face in the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. And so by, by the late 40s, and Kennedy and Nixon were each elected to Congress for the first time in the same year, 1946, the 80th Congress, uh, Lodge had inadvertently cleared a path. And so I, I absolutely think that there was an angle there that was opportunism. Um, at the same time, you know, you, you look at the, the, the records, um, which have been released uh, much more recently, of Kennedy's campaign in, in 52, uh, the, the Kennedys uh, against Lodge, the Kennedys also studied uh, Lodge's Senate race in, in 46 against Walsh. Um, and um, what you see is that, you know, they, had, they, they knew it would be hard to run against Lodge. Uh, they, they had similar views. It was tough to find any extremism, you know, in, in Lodge, even at the beginning of the Mark McCarthy era. Uh, and and uh, I, I think uh, one of the takeaways you see, I, and I think this is true for 52 in the Kennedy-Lodge Senate race, and maybe even true in 60 against the presidency when Kennedy ran against Nixon, is that in 52, Kennedy ran to the right of Lodge as a Democrat. Um, he, he, uh, he criticized Lodge for supporting Truman's foreign policy. He criticized Lodge for supporting Truman's Korean War. Um, and uh, so, he, and, and, he, and he, he, you know, it was Kennedy who allied himself with Joe McCarthy in the anti-communist uh, discussion of that year. And, you know, in a year, in 1952, when the two biggest issues were anti-communism and the Korean War. So I think Kennedy was extremely shrewd with the help of his father in actually positioning himself on the right of Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, Jr., in 1952, and it worked. Why did uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, um, when Eisenhower made the offer after his defeat by Kennedy in the uh, 52 Senate race, uh, Eisenhower made the offer to Cabot Lodge of any position that he wanted in Washington that he had the um, power to deliver other than being Secretary of State. Why did he choose the UN uh, position? Huh, well, um, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, some of the slots were already filled. You know, for example, you know, I think, I think Eisenhower had the budget figured out. I think he, Dulles was a lock for Secretary of State. Um, but he, he thought Lodge, I think initially what Eisenhower wanted for uh, Lodge was to be a chief of staff and to be some, close to him in the White House. And the, the chief of staff position, which every administration almost has used since Eisenhower, was really from, uh, from Eisenhower's days in the Army. Um, it, you know, Eisenhower brought in a kind of military structure for the for the staff in the White House, and so I think Eisenhower's initial instincts were to keep Lodge close, really as a as an organizer, and it was to keep doing what he did on the campaign to kind of organize him, organize his agenda, 
to be a, a, a you know a, a confidential, a private political advisor. But I think it was really Dulles and others who had known Lodge had been a delegate to the UN in the Truman administration and had gotten to know uh, Dulles, uh, who had um, when Lodge was on Senate Foreign Relations and Dulles would come in sometimes as a witness and talk to the Republican members. And so I think Dulles and others intervened that it would be kind of a waste not to use Lodge in an international role somehow. And so in the 50s, um, you know, might have been the most important decade um, in terms of the UN because it was the first full decade of the UN. The UN, I think a lot of conservatives still wondered whether it had ambitions to become a world government and all these things you read now that kind of seem antiquated. And so what Lodge was able to do by going to the UN was that was kind of the um, ground zero for uh, the, the, the rhetoric of the Cold War. Uh, that was where the Soviet attacks against the U.S. were being made. And I think what Lodge hoped to do and what Eisenhower wanted him to do was to be able to respond to the Soviet attacks, to use his debating skills uh, sort of on the front line of the Cold War, uh, to welcome these new members in the General Assembly as the size of the U.N. exploded in this post-colonial age. And so I think you know, putting Lodge up in New York allowed him to be almost kind of a second sec- secretary of state and uh, while not having the title, I think he served in that role a number of times, that his operation at the U.N. was, was so large and moved so quickly sometimes, uh, it, there wasn't even time to consult with Washington. And so I think it was a place where Elijah you know, was kind of a loner. He had a lot of autonomy up in New York. So I think it was a good fit for him. And, and, and ultimately, he stuck around for all, uh, all the eight years of the Eisenhower administration, which is a term of service of the U.N. that no U.N. ambassador has exceeded before or since. In his book, uh, Eisenhower's Generation in the Cold War, H.W. Brands quotes some people in the State Department, uh, specifically Robert Murphy, who thought that Lodge had uh, gone native, as it were, in terms of being excessively friendly to third world governments and their representatives at the UN in New York. Would you agree with that assessment? I, I, in my book, I include some um, comments from Murphy too, um, and, but you know, and and you know, I think there's different sides of that because I also quote some other sources who said, well, it's not quite right. You know, I knew Lodge a long time back in the Senate days, uh, but you know, I think there's there's a ring of truth to what Murphy said in terms of, you know, Lodge was um, Lodge had a very good record on civil rights, um, and many of the new members coming into the UN in the 1950s were were non-white nations. These were the, the post-colonial nations of, of Africa, uh, uh, former British, former French, and uh, Lodge was, a, was kind of a welcoming face for the United States. And I think the second part of it is, you know, at the UN, you know, this was, uh, this was the beginning of the civil rights era. This was Brown versus Board, 1954. This was Little Rock High School, 1957. And so Lodge, you know, was at the UN, uh, while non-white nations are coming in and adding to the growth, this explosive growth in the General Assembly, uh, meanwhile, you know, the, the, the rest of the nation is really going through the trauma of the, the civil rights era. And so Lodge understood the significance of that because in his private writings you can see where he comments on it, that um, you know, you know, the, my work here is very important for civil rights because uh, African Americans at home see how these black dignitaries are being treated in New York, and vice versa. Um, and so he saw a connection between domestic politics and his own work at the UN, which he thought was not just very important for the nation, but he thought it was very important for the Eisenhower administration and its record on civil rights. And so Lodge always had this uh, fairly progressive record on, on uh, civil rights. I think it, it started, 
you know, he's not someone who grew up around, uh, a lot, exposed to a lot of uh, non-white, non-WASP, you know, Americans. But I think it was his time in the Army, uh, which was kind of a more egalitarian experience where he got to know a lot of people from different backgrounds, far beyond the, the bubble of the, the, the North Shore of Boston. Um, and I think uh, carried that record all the way through his political career. And it kind of came to this point in 19, the 1950s, when as we entered the civil rights era, you know, I think he found a, a new importance you know, in, in, this, in this work. Why did Richard Nixon choose Cabot Lodge to be his vice presidential uh, running mate? Well, you know, I can't point to a, a document that provides the, the absolute truth about that or the, or the answer. Um, but I think, you know, my, my speculation is, is, is uh, it's, it's pretty easy to say, and the answer is Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, clearly, Eisenhower was involved behind the scenes in getting Lodge on that ticket. And as I say in the book, you know, um, n- you know by 1960, name two people who owed more uh, to Henry Cabot Lodge than Richard Nixon or Dwight Eisenhower. I think it'd be awfully tough to find in terms of running Eisenhower's campaign, being right by his side for eight years, getting Nixon on the ticket and grooming him as a, as a senior national figure. You know, I think Lodge was, a, was an obvious fit to add experience and depth and, uh, of course, to repay, uh, uh, repay the favors owed by, by both Eisenhower and Nixon. From the documentation that you cite in the book, which uh, I believe you state uh, you were the first work, first person to peruse, uh, it appears that Ambassador Lodge was in trying to overthrow the regime of Diem in South Vietnam, following instructions directly from President Kennedy. Is that, is that more or less the case, you would say? Well, I mean, I try to take a nuanced approach to that. Um, so, um, so, I, so, I don't, so there's a tape that I found at the John F. Kennedy Library that had actually been, de- de- as, as, as common, at the National Archives. It was declassified a few years before in 2009. So for that reason, I don't, uh, certainly don't say I, I must have been the first to listen to it or to mention it. Um, but I asked the JFK Library staff, uh, had they ever seen a transcript before? And they're not aware of a transcript. And I went around and, and asked uh, the, the, the remaining experts, like living Kennedy administration officials, experts in the Kennedy tapes. And it doesn't appear that any tape had, had uh, ever surfaced before. So what I was the first to do is to transcribe a tape um, that I think seems to, I would not call it an, an, a Kennedy order for a coup. Um, I would call it something close to an authorization to lodge for a coup. And by that, I mean, um, yeah, I think it's clear to me as someone who's worked a lot with White House tapes, which require interpretation and the audio is sometimes very difficult to use and you've got to triangulate it with other documents. You know, I, I think it's clear in the tape that Kennedy was willing to live with the outcome of a coup under certain circumstances. And so I see the tape after, and I, I ran the, my conclusions by the last two remaining senior Kennedy officials, uh, Rufus Phillips and Tom Hughes. And, uh, you know, I got their input going forward. Uh, I, you know, I didn't want to overstate the, what's on the tape. I didn't want to understate uh, the content of it. And so that's, that's where I come down is that it was kind of Kennedy's green light to lodge that during his farewell before he goes to Saigon as our, as our newly appointed ambassador to look into the possibility of a coup with the generals uh, who were already plotting for a coup and had tried unsuccessfully to stage a coup in the past more than once, uh, to look into the possibility. Um, but at the same time, I, I hedge that two ways. I say um, I'm not sure that another president in Kennedy's position would have decided a radically different policy outcome than Kennedy. 
And I also say, of course, it wasn't Kennedy, uh, but Eisenhower in the 1950s that had made regime change a part of U.S. policy and had used the CIA for that reason. Uh, so, so I do think it, it, it's a new piece of the puzzle because it's, it's earlier than has been documented. And secondly, you know, prior to this book, the status quo was that there's no evidence at all you know, that Kennedy discussed a coup, let alone an assassination, you know, two or three months before it occurred. And so I think it's, it's another piece of the puzzle, but at the same time I would caution readers because you know, it took me how many years to find this after it was recorded initially, and I can tell you there's still a lot of records at the Kennedy Library that are still classified. And so it's a new piece of the puzzle, uh, but surely not the last. Uh, do we know when exactly Cabot Lodge uh, saw that there was no alternative to a coup in terms of the DM regime? I, I, wouldn't, I, I couldn't narrow it down to an exact date. Um, so when he goes over in late August, there's an initial talk of 63 when he arrives in Saigon. There's kind of talk that maybe a coup could happen quickly. And it's clear that's not going to happen. And so then the talk kind of dies down uh, in, uh, in the very end of August of 63. September is fairly quiet. You know, there, I think uh, American officials are trying diplomacy instead of overthrowing CM's government. Uh, but certainly by early October, um, October 5th, October 8th, you know, something like that. The coup, of course, is November 1st and 2nd of 1963. But by around the end of the first week of October, um, the talk of the coup is, 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 is growing again. Uh, the coup plotters appear to have more forces on their side. They appear to be better funded. They appear to ha have a better plan than they had in, in late August. And so I think the momentum really begins to grow uh, that opening week of October. So I, I would guess sometime around then, um, you know, it, I think Lodge would have agreed that it, it seemed like there was going to be another attempt. They had, the, the coup plotters had tried in 1960. They were unsuccessful. They'd even bombed uh, CM's presidential palace and almost uh, killed, uh, killed him uh, a couple of years before. So, you know, the, the, I think there would have been a, another coup attempt, even if Lodge had never been ambassador. The coup plotters were kind of, you know, inching closer and closer to their target, hadn't quite gotten there. Um, so I, I think it would have happened. But you know, I think probably around the, a week into October of 63, it, it appears that there's going to be another attempt. And then as that month unfolds, they told Lodge they thought it would either be the very end of, they, at first they thought it would be by the end of that month. So I think that's when things started to get serious. Why was, I'm sorry. How would you describe uh, Cabot Lodge's relationship with President Johnson, and why was he not alienated from him by, um, for lack of a better expression, Johnson's peculiar mannerisms in the, in the way that, say, his fellow Boston Brahmin, Mac George Bundy, or for someone of a similar social background, Douglas Dillon, were alienated? Well, I mean, Lodge had known uh, Johnson in the Senate. Um, Johnson uh, rose to national prominence the same year that Eisenhower did, uh, the same year that, uh, that Lodge went to the U.N., the same year that Nixon rose to prominence. You know, the early 1950s were a changing time for not just Republicans coming back in the White House, but also for Lyndon Johnson becoming Senate Majority Leader. And so as Senate Majority Leader, he's effectively kind of the leader of his party um, in Washington, the senior most Democrat and so he's working very closely with the Eisenhower administration, especially later on civil rights, leading up to the 57 Civil Rights Act. And so he's, he's getting to know Eisenhower. He's getting to know Nixon. He's getting to know Lodge privately. 
Um, and so I think that they, they had a relationship there. You know, Johnson had been in the Senate earlier before becoming a majority leader. So I, I think um, by the time Johnson became president, um, Lodge was already fairly well acquainted with uh, the, te- the Texans' unique mannerisms. Um, I, I, no one could have predicted that he would have become president. Uh, Lodge, as far as uh, I can tell, was com- just as surprised as anybody else by the assassination of, uh, of Kennedy in, in November of 63. I think the real question for Lodge that wasn't clear was, um, was you know, did he have a duty to stay on for Johnson? And in private correspondence with Eisenhower, that was a question raised. You know, it was his duty in Vietnam uh, only under Kennedy. Should he stay on indefinitely under Johnson? Uh, Eisenhower uh, gave an interview to the New York Times in December of 63, just a couple weeks after Kennedy's uh, death, uh, a month after ZM's death, after the coup, um, and suggested that Lodge should come home instead and run for president in 1964. Uh, Lodge was on his way to Washington to consult with Kennedy about Vietnam uh, when he learned he had been killed, Kennedy had been killed, and instead of paying his, uh, instead of briefing Kennedy, uh, on Vietnam, he paid his final respects to him at Arlington National Cemetery, and instead uh, briefed President Johnson, who uh, was so new new in office that he was still using his executive office building office, the vice president's office. And Lodge was in fact the first American diplomat that Johnson saw uh, as president, and uh, ultimately uh, was persuaded by Johnson to stay on. So the sort of the rest was history. Um, but I think uh, Lodge was already very well acquainted with with Johnson, and although they were from very different backgrounds, um, you know, d- d- Democrats had always gotten along with someone like Lodge because he was kind of the liberal side of the Republican Party, and he was for civil rights, and you know, he was kind of someone you could get along with. And Lodge really didn't have a lot of enemies, except for maybe on the the Taft side of the Republican Party. So ultimately, uh, Lodge was convinced to stay on uh, for Johnson and uh, served him in a variety of roles uh, through the end of his presidency. How and why did uh, Cabot Lodge win the Republican primary for president in New Hampshire in 1964? Well, Lodge won the New Hampshire primary by basically doing nothing. Uh, He was not a candidate. He had no campaign. He was 10,000 miles away in Vietnam, and he was officially prohibited from doing anything political. Um, You know, I I think it was this was as much a surprise to Lodge as it was to everyone else. What what the, the, the private records show is that after Kennedy's death, um, you know, Lodge wasn't even a factor. He wasn't even considered to be in the running for the nomination, uh, for the Republican nomination in 64. What seemed to change all that was, uh, was Kennedy's death. And Lodge was seen to be sort of a Kennedy-like figure, kind of cut from a similar cloth with similar views, um, and uh, known to be sort of bipartisan. And it was after um, Kennedy's death that uh, Gallup polls started to uh, insert Lodge's name um, as a possible contender for the Republican nomination in 64, and uh, that resonated with people, at least enough to, to explore the possibility. And so, you know, Lodge had basically kind of a surrogate group trying this out, uh, led by his son George as a document in the book, and it came awfully close. Um, I mean, he had, a, he had a, I, I think, a real chance to make a run for this, but being trapped in Vietnam, where he could not campaign, um, you know, and, and I think the the real thing that 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 hurt him was as Lodge had served Eisenhower, had had drafted him to run, had put him on the ballot, had run his own campaign. Lodge didn't have his own lodge in '64. 
He didn't have that party figure who was enthusiastic and, and resourceful and, and would, would be assertive, you know, like Lodge was for Eisenhower. He was lacking that. There were others rallying around, but Eisenhower never quite came out and prominently endorsed him. You know, Eisenhower just, you know, had many strengths as a leader, but I think two of his weaknesses uh, were that he, was, he, he didn't quite embrace his role as a political leader, and he didn't quite embrace his role as a leader of a political party. And I think that was a real weakness that, that I document hurt uh, Lodge in 1964 when he had a real chance. In retrospect, is it not the case that uh, Cabot Lodge erred in going along with President Johnson's policy of military escalation in South Vietnam in uh, the spring and summer of 1965? Well, Lodge was, you know, Lodge was uh, not the hawkish hawk, and he wasn't the dovish dove. I mean, he was often split the difference in some of the debates. Um, you know, Lodge did believe in standing up to aggression. He believed that was the, the, the lesson of so-called Munich. That was the lesson of World War II. Um, he, I don't know that he quite believed in the domino theory, you know, the idea that one country would fall to communism and it would necessarily lead to a, lead to a neighboring country and then another neighboring country. You know, I think in part uh, he, he didn't quite buy into the domino theory because the domino theory kind of assumes that all the communist dominoes look the same uh, and with the same intent. And Lodge was kind of on the forefront learning that uh, there were serious disputes in the communist family, so to speak, between the North Vietnamese and the Chinese and the Soviets. And, but I think Lodge did believe firmly uh, that the Chinese were a revolutionary state that, uh, that had exported revolution to its neighbors and continued to export revolution to the region. And Lodge did believe that it was important for the United States, being the only nation that could do that, you know, draw a line you know, beyond which the aggression couldn't go. So I did think he, he thought that was a, a worthy fight. And even later in life, in the 1970s, as he tried to, make, tried to make a little more sense out of Vietnam and his role in it, you know, he, he at least kind of believed that you know, it was kind of a worthy endeavor because it kind of marked the end of these wars, these kind of wars that never ended, Korea and then Vietnam, um, and that even though it was, it, was, it was not a success for the United States, it, it did show, in Lodge's view, uh, for the communists, the high cost of never-ending war, and that if you're going to go to war with the United States, it's going to cost us a lot, but it's going to cost you a lot, too. And I think these were the views that uh, Lodge ultimately had, at least according to his private writings. What could be said to have been uh, Cabot Lodge's legacy as a public figure in 20th century American history? Well, Lodge was someone who made his mark on the country. He was someone who made his mark on the Republican Party, and I would say even the world. But he was still someone who had no successors. I mean, he was too much of a loner. I think the events of Lodge's life will be familiar to, uh, to many readers. Lodge's association in those events is something that's new. And at times, seeing those events through Lodge's eyes change our, uh, our view of the events themselves. Uh, but I think in the, the, the bottom line, you know, net calculation, um, I think Lodge's biggest contribution as it, as, it, as it continues today was beginning in the Eisenhower period, reorienting the Republican Party to be a party more of, of moderates, not of conservatives, of the Taft mold, um, and more of the, the internationalist flair like himself or like Eisenhower, and not the Tafts and those that came before him. And I think certainly today, I think more people would associate the Republican Party with being kind of the pro-military party 
or the pro-foreign policy party, for better or for worse. And I think you have to, when you draw a line back in history, to see where that started. It started with Henry Cabot Lodge in the late 40s and Vandenberg and Eisenhower, and Lodge was very much the, the political leader of that group. If you wanted people to take one thing away from this book, what would it be? Lodge harks back to a time when people could disagree without being disagreeable. And I think if there's one thing that we've lost today, whether you look on what's happening on Twitter and other social media platforms, it's that uh, we are quick to be disagreeable. We do the opposite today. Uh, and I think Lodge reminds us of a time when there was greater bipartisanship, which I think is, is even uh, you know, firm believers on both, in both parties. One again, when, when politicians crossed the aisle in Washington and got more done, when this, these key Senate foreign relations votes in the late 40s that, that restructured the world uh, were unanimous votes of Republicans, Democrats. And so I think Lodge, show, Lodge shows us uh, that this era existed, and I think Lodge shows us that it can be possible again. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Nichter, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Nichter. Yeah, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. I thought that went very well. I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to allow me to interview you. It was, an, read, it was a delight reading your excellent book. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I, I was excited to do this one because you have, you have yourself such an interesting, eclectic background, uh, and you've had such a wide range of authors, and you were obviously very, very well prepared and asked some good questions and also some tough questions, so it was, it was really my pleasure. Uh, Professor, this should appear on the network in around seven to nine business days. Once that occurs, I'll forward a link to the podcast to you and the publicist at Yale University Press. That's great. I really appreciate it.